This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Robert Palmer is the owner of the Jacksonville Armada, and he is admittedly new to the soccer landscape, but he is a seasoned vet when it comes to building businesses, bringing fresh ideas to the table, and finding innovative solutions to complex problems. And one of his latest problems that he has encountered is indeed a soccer problem. And you'll hear me tell him multiple times that I am thankful that he has stepped into the American soccer arena. More specifically, I am thankful that he has been, and still is, willing to fight for what he believes is right for the American soccer community. Because one thing that him and I definitely have in common is the belief that soccer in America can be so much bigger and so much better. But there are unnecessary roadblocks preventing people like Palmer and players and coaches and entire communities across the country from enjoying the full benefits that soccer has to offer. In 2017, the NASL, the league that Palmer's Jacksonville Armada last played in, lost its divisional sanctioning. That left Palmer and other NASL owners scrambling to find a new league to play in or come up with a new plan in order to continue playing. You'll hear Robert say in this interview that the group of NASL owners might have made the wrong decision when they decided to stop pursuing an avenue to play soccer and to go all in on a lawsuit against USSF. But whether or not that was right or wrong at the time, Robert Palmer hasn't stopped looking for new opportunities that will bring his armada back on the field in the future. And if all goes to plan, it'll bring another big group of American soccer teams back on the field and into a new league possibly in the future as well. This interview was actually a pretty interesting one. Because when I spoke to Robert, he was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, actually on a, on a rooftop at a bar, I think. And he was there for a meeting with other lower division soccer owners, administrators, players, and fans. And they were just there to throw ideas at the wall and to see what sticks. And judging from the tweets that he and others put out over the course of the weekend, it sounds like the conversation was good. And that lower division soccer, and I'm using air quotes as I say that, uh, lower division soccer as we know it might be getting a makeover as a result of this weekend of conversations. And I want to admit that I didn't do nearly enough homework about Robert Palmer and his businesses in order to get the most out of him during this interview. He is a fountain of knowledge, especially in the area of sitting down and dealing directly with USSF face-to-face. And I didn't do a good enough job of tapping into that as much as I probably could have or should have. And I get there's there's a reason why, though. And the interview literally went from proposal to recording basically overnight. And in a perfect world, I would have loved to have had more time to study. But in the world of interviewing millionaire soccer team owners, I... I I don't think there's a way that you can say no when I get an email saying, he's ready to go today. Let's do this. So if my questions seem clunkier than usual, I apologize. And I'm just super thankful again for Robert uh, being an absolute pro and his answers and stories, I think more than made up for all any of my clunkiness, even my clunkiness in this intro, geez. Um, But I also want to explain something else that is going to seem weird. And I think by my own standards, 
will make me seem soft. And you're going to hear me ask Robert about his festival style stadium setup that he has started to encourage communities to try. When you hear me talk about it, it's going to sound like I am okay with the focus being taken off of soccer and put onto gimmicky stuff like music and fireworks and other stuff that just is away from the field. And that came out, I think, wrong and clunky again because of my failure to really prepare for this interview. But I want you to know it's something that I'm passionate about and it just... it it has a little bit of meaning behind it. And so at a previous job, I was actually an event organizer and worked specifically in music and concert promotion in a small college town. I have worked on improving event experience for years of my life. And I've seen firsthand what it can be like when you involve an entire community in something that they are genuinely passionate about. But most of all, I've learned that small towns and cities across America are genuinely passionate about where they live, their neighbors, and showing outsiders what they really have to offer. And in a nutshell, I think that's exactly what is missing in American soccer. That genuine connection, not only between soccer fans and the team, but between the team and the actual community itself. Getting communities involved on game day, whether we're talking about local recreational leagues, an NPSL team like Stockade FC, or even professional teams, is what small and mid-sized towns can do better than most large markets that MLS is trying to limit soccer to in this country. Their scarcity model, MLS's scarcity model, which Robert talks about in this interview, is giving us a very watered-down version of soccer in this country. And in my opinion, teams should be an authentic reflection of communities identities, and history. But here in America, we get franchises that are created out of thin air, and those franchises then tell communities to accept their image, and those franchises tell communities that they must play by their rules. And you know what? I'm just I'm sick of it, and I, I'm sick of having to deal with it, and I'm happy that people like Robert Palmer are getting involved because Robert Palmer, as you're going to hear, is an advocate for community-based soccer. And so am I. And so when I say something like, you know, getting the entire community involved around ideas that aren't necessarily soccer, but it brings people to the stadium, I want you to know that I'm passionately advocating for things that will get the entire community involved and rallied around a team. And that's it. If it takes an out-of-the-box idea in order to spark something to get a community fired up, I'm all for it. And I'm all in. And I'm super happy to have found somebody like Robert Palmer to talk to who I think shares that same vision. So I am super excited to get into today's interview with Robert Palmer. Uh, but first, I want to remind you that this podcast is funded by the 343 Membership Program. It's you, the members, that keep this podcast going. So if you are not a member and you are wondering what benefits the 343 Coaching Program can offer you, you get insider access to exclusive videos of training sessions and full games with additional education from ebooks, audio interviews, question and answer sessions, and online forums for networking and collaboration with other coaching members. It is a complete online resource if you are looking to create better and smarter players, build better and smarter teams, and become a better and smarter coach. So to help support this podcast and to find out more information about about the benefits, sorry, about the benefits of being a 343 member, you can visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers three, four, and three, coaching, 
all spelled out, dot com. All right. That was a long inter- or long introduction. Sorry. I'm out of breath. Um, let's get into it. I hope that you enjoy this episode with the Jacksonville Armada owner, Robert Palmer. All right, sounds good. I just hit record, so um, let's just uh, let's get into it. I got a. I, I've been listening to, or I've been kind of tracking your your conversations that you've been having over the last month or so. And I honestly, I I, I wasn't really that aware of you until until recently. Um, so I'm still kind of I'm still kind of learning a lot about you and and Armada and and the situation that you guys are in. I, I guess one of the things that pops out to to me as, as a question I've been dying to ask you is, is somebody that's kind of in a way new to the professional soccer landscape. You had to go into these board meetings with USSF and, and, you know, state your case. What's it like being an, an owner of an NASL team? That's, that's like I said, kind of new to the landscape and try to go in there and change the minds of people that have been involved with soccer in America for 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, man, it's it's been eye opening. I guess that's probably the best way to say it. You know, so I come in and yeah, I mean, I'm I'm new to the soccer business. You know, I'm new to owning a club. I've been a lot of boardrooms. You know, building up my own companies and you know, I just really when when I went into that first USSF board meeting, you know, for the Arm for the you know the Armada and the NASL's sanctioning, uh, I I just I never thought we would come out with this with the the answer we had. I never thought we would come out with the response of of not being sanctioned. It just it didn't make sense to me, you know. And I understand the whole they wanted X number of clubs and we didn't have it. Like I get that, but when you just look at what was the motivation or what what was the benefit of taking our sanctioning away? Like yeah, they they punished us for not having enough teams, but we never took a dollar from U.S. Soccer. We weren't hurting their budget in any way. We were dumping tens of millions of dollars a year into the sport. We were paying players. We were providing exposure to more fans. I just, as a business guy, I didn't understand the politics. I didn't understand why they would take away our sanctioning, even though I knew we didn't meet the rules. I get that. But it still didn't make good business sense to take away our sanctioning. And I, I still believe that. And that that's probably the, the toughest thing for me to reconcile in my brain of coming into this is we're not taking any money from them. We're not costing them anything. Yeah, we didn't meet the rules that they set out. And, and I get that you can take that hard line, but we were benefiting the sport of soccer, and, and that's what it should be about. When, well, let me backtrack. I, I guess as I've been kind of tracking your your podcasts and, and your interviews and stuff that's been coming out, I haven't really seen anything that has talked about why you decided to buy the Armada, I guess, and, and the, the months or days leading up to the decision to actually, you know, get involved with, with the Armada. So tell me, can you, can you tell me a little bit about like how that conversation started and how you were approached about that and, and what actually interested you about purchasing yeah. the Armada? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we can touch on this. And if, if you have a chance, if you go to the Armada website, there's a, the press conference from when they announced me buying the team. And I go into a lot more detail. But at the highest level, they originally called me for a sponsorship. You know, so my, my companies are some of the largest advertisers in the state of Florida. Uh, one of the largest radio advertisers in the country. We're a very large TV advertiser. 
We're a big sports sponsorship advertiser. Uh, prior to buying the Armada, I did one of the largest, or actually the largest deal in the NBA G League history for a, a sponsorship deal that involved a building naming rights. It invited, you know, involved a jersey sponsorship. And so uh, a sales guy for the Armada called me uh, because he drives up and down 995 every day and saw my name on the side of the RP Funding Building and approached us about a jersey sponsorship. And one of the things that I look at it with a lower division club is, you know, what is the financial stability? What is the state of the club? Because in some cases, our sponsorships can be a substantial portion of the club's budget. And so as we got into those conversations, it became clear. And then they told us that the, the club was basically bankrupt. The old owner had given it to the league and walked away and the league was looking for a new owner. So if I wanted to advertise and if I wanted to have a place with the team, I really had to buy it if I was going to guarantee it's, it's long-term stability. And, you know, I, I love the sport. I think it's, it's growing. It's on the uptake. The advertising you know, possibilities for soccer are the best in any sport because of the Jersey deal. I mean, in any other sport, if you go put a, a logo on the size of a Jersey, you know, as big as it is in soccer, the, the fans would go crazy. But in, in soccer, it's accepted. It's normal. It's the norm. And so as an advertiser, that was exciting. And so the big experiment I wanted to run and basically what I did in Jacksonville, I said, OK, if I take all of my advertising dollars, if I take every single TV commercial I run and every single radio commercial I run and I aim them at the Armada. So not just advertising my mortgage company and my real estate companies, and my other brands, but let me incorporate the Armada into all those commercials. What will the effect be on the team? You know, how much can the team benefit from my ownership because I can give it all this advertising. I mean, we're one of, again, one of the largest advertisers in Jacksonville. So when we did that, when we flipped it and said, okay, instead of the team advertising the sponsor, let's have the sponsor advertise the team. And, and the results were amazing. We went from 700 fans in the stands to over 7,000. We went from less than a thousand TV viewers to over 25,000. I mean, everything was going gangbusters right up until NASL lost their sanctioning. At what point did you realize that, that something was going wrong? At, w- at what point did you realize that you were going to be in, in some sort of a battle? Yes. I mean, I flew to New York. It's again, the, you know, the, the whole idea of the, the sanctioning review process and its annual, you know, I flew to New York uh, and we knew that, that we only had seven teams and we knew we had needed to have eight. And so this is where there's this whole kind of, you know, the pro league standards say that I think it's by year five, you have to have 12 teams our kind of argument with U.S. soccer was like, look, traffic is gone. All of the original owners are gone. When you look at the entire ownership group left in NASL, we're all here less than five years. So are you willing to look at us as a new league? Because we really are. There, there was nothing left but the name from the people that were involved with NASL prior to the five-year period. So that was our first thing. It's like, look, can we, can we convince them to look at us? as a new league and let us go for eight teams instead of 12. And I honestly felt like we had a pretty compelling and, and a logical argument for that new commissioner, all new owners. There was no one left from the old regime. Let us be considered a new league. Let us buy with eight teams. Right. And then because the San Francisco deltas were planning on folding and they were falling apart, we were only going to have seven teams. So we made a decision to finance Detroit cities move up to NASL. And myself and some other owners, we committed a large sum of cash to help Detroit City make the move up to NASL. And all that was ready to happen. 
So when I looked at it, when I flew to New York and I walked into that boardroom with U.S. soccer, I thought, okay, we've got seven solid teams. We've got this eighth team who is one of the greatest success stories in lower division soccer on the planet. I mean, really, what these guys have done in Detroit is amazing. We're going to provide them a financial backstop. They've got two billionaires and a guy worth hundreds of millions of dollars behind them now providing financing to make this work. That, that made sense to me. And so I completely expected, I mean, I, I honestly, I left that boardroom thinking we were good. And then, you know, a matter of hours later, we got the news that we were not going to receive sanctioning. I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to wrap my head around when you actually realized that what you had gotten yourself into was going to be such a battle though. So like when you bought the Armada, you obviously, you probably weren't aware that you could be losing your business in six months or 12 months, right? So I totally understood that the team was a risk. I knew I was buying a team that had just gone bankrupt. I was buying a team that had less than a thousand people in the stands. They were reporting thousands in attendance, but in reality, there were less than a thousand people in the stands. You know, there was almost no ticket revenue. There was almost no sponsorship revenue. There was no TV viewership. Like I understood all the risks of buying a club that was in the condition it was in. And, and I understood at some level that the NASL had risks. I understood that we had to go back for sanctioning. I understood that we had the provisional sanctioning tag. We were provisionally sanctioned as D2. But it, it honestly felt to me like the league was on an upswing. We had additional teams wanting to come in. We had all of this momentum. And so while I knew the risks, and look, even now, I don't regret this decision one bit. I, I wouldn't go back and do it any other way. I am happy to be sitting right where I am. Uh, because it, it, it needs this board at this point needs owners who are willing to take the risk and willing to step up and willing to put it on the line for what they believe in. And I'm, I'm willing to be that guy, one of those guys. Uh, I don't regret it at all. But while I knew the risks, they all seemed mitigated. They all seemed like they were going to be OK until we hit that USSF boardroom and the politics got involved. Yeah, just it, it seems like you've had your experiences with, you know, sponsoring other teams or other sports or things like that. And you might have like soccer is just like an animal of its own. And I'm 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 personally thankful that guys like you and Rocco and some other people have gotten involved and have stayed involved and not been, you know, you guys aren't you guys aren't turning and running when when stuff got hairy. But I'm I'm now I'm super curious about some other stuff that's been happening. Um, I think people can, can kind of gather information about division zero and, and some other stuff you've been talking from other podcasts. What, what are, what are some things that maybe people don't know about what you are working on or, or have plans to do? Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to be as absolutely transparent as possible, you know? And so if, if people don't know it's out there somewhere, it's, it's, it can be found. I really have tried to be as transparent as I can with this. You know, I'm not in sports ownership to make money. I make money from my other primary businesses. This is about passion. This is about the marketing reach. This is about protecting the fans and the city of Jacksonville and the sport in Jacksonville for me. So that I, I try to be as transparent as I can. I don't have anything to hide because I really don't have anything to lose. I can't get fired. <laughs> I can't, you know, I don't have this investment or investors or board members I have to answer to. So I can be as, as transparent as possible. Uh, you know, you ask about Division Zero and you know that that phrase, that whole concept was about an option. Right. So there was a moment when if you just kind of rewind, like here we are when I bought the team, when I bought the Armada, I, I had to go to New York. This was a, a previous trip. 
and I, I had to present kind of to all the NASL owners why, you know, why I should be the guy they should sell the team to. And in that, one of the things I said was, look, here's what all I can bring to the table. All I'm asking from you all is show up and play soccer with me. I don't care what division we are. Or I don't care how we're sanctioned. This was all before any of the problems arose. I said, I don't care about any of that. All I care about is that the seven of you are going to show up and play soccer with me in Jacksonville because that's all it takes for me to be successful. If the seven of you will fly your teams in and let me fly my team to you and, and the eight of us collectively can play soccer together, that's all I ask for. And so there was a moment when we received the, the ruling back from U.S. soccer. We did not have sanctioning. And we had two choices. Do we play soccer unsanctioned or do we sue? What do we do? And I feel like if we had done the research in advance, if we had really taken the time to understand what it would mean to play without U.S. soccer's approval, maybe the eight of us would have taken the pitch this year and our fans would all still have a team playing soccer right now to cheer for. But we didn't. We jumped to the conclusion that it just couldn't work. They took our sanctioning away. We can't play now. What are we going to do? And we stopped and we didn't play. And then teams left because we weren't going to play. And teams folded because we weren't going to play. And teams dropped down to lower division leagues because we weren't going to play. And now we're all scattered across the soccer landscape in different places where if we had all known that we could still play soccer together, we could still get out on the pitch and play the beautiful game regardless of our divisional sanctioning or anything else from U.S. soccer, we would still be doing that. And so the Division Zero question haunted me from that point on. And so I decided right then I was going to explore that. I was going to spend the money to bring together experts, to bring together people in the know, marketing experts, sporting experts, sponsorship experts, stadium experts, broadcast experts, all these people to look at and solve for the question of if I ever find myself in another league, that one day is unsanctioned or cannot get sanctioning, can we still play soccer? And at its core, that's all Division Zero was meant to be. And you recently, I think you, it, was, it might have been this morning, you tweeted out something saying that there actually is a way for you guys to continue playing and continue to be sanctioned. Have you started to talk about that publicly more? Yeah, so again, I'm, I'm transparent. I'm happy to talk about it. You know what? One of my concepts is, you know, at this point, like we don't have promotion and relegation, right? Well, and I get, so again, let me, let me preface this by saying I am in a different position than some of my partners in the NASL were. You know, I understand Rocco's position that he had the Emirates sponsorship, right? Probably the, the premier sponsorship in all of soccer, football across the globe. You know, look at the Emirates Arsenal deal. You know, Rocco had Emirates if, if without Division Two that Emirates deal was going to be put in jeopardy. You know, there were other things specific to his situation that we put in jeopardy. Uh, Ricardo Silva, Miami FC. He has, uh, you know, a suit in the court of arbitration for promotion and relegation. Well, if he's not in division two and he wins that suit, he doesn't get to move up to division one when he wins. So there were, there were some teams that had a reason why they needed to be division two. I was not one of those teams. I don't need to be division two. At this point, what I have realized is I do need FIFA sanctioning. I need a way to register players. I need access to referees. We can do that outside of the system, but it becomes much more difficult. You know, we can sign players to contracts that are still enforceable without FIFA. It's a little tougher. We can hire and train referees and we can do all these things, but it's easier if we're inside the system. And so 
one part of me says, you know what, let me let me go to the lowest place on the entire spectrum. Right. Let me find whatever people would consider like division eight or nine or ten. You know, so if, if the pro league standards are D1, 2 and 3 and then let's say USASA unofficially, you know, they have a tier one, two and three. So let's call that four five and six. And then maybe if you if your league is sanctioned at the state association level, that's like seven. You know, I want to go as far down the pyramid as I can so that I can show because I want to show people that even at division six or seven or eight or whatever you want to call me, I can build a stadium in Jacksonville. I can put 10,000 fans in the stands. I can do a TV rating that beats a lot of sports in the area. I can sell sponsorship deals. I can sign top quality players because my belief is that if I can prove that, if I can show that to investors that with a pyramid without promotion and relegation, it doesn't matter what arbitrary division you're put in. It matters the quality of the teams you play against. And so if I can convince seven or eight other guys to come play soccer with me in the lowest division imaginable that we can pave a way forward for something different. And that something different is promotion and relegation. I'm loving the energy and I love all the ideas too. And one of the things that I heard you talk about that really resonated with me and I'll kind of give you maybe just like a quick story. The, the men's league, the local men's league here is made up of maybe 25 to 30 teams each year. They put together like an all-star team basically of, of, players that are under 23 years old and they bring in a team from Mexico to come up and play our men's league all-stars. And this is just, just in our city. It's a small city that's in between San Francisco and LA and they host the game at a high school stadium and it fills up, it sells out, you know, their sponsorship, they get sold, you know, the concession stands uh, have huge lines that people pay $25 for a ticket to come see just kids that are 23 years old playing in a men's league play against a U 20 team from say Chivas or America in, in, in Mexico. And so that, that has always resonated with me. It's like, you know, that I can see the potential for soccer here in my small city. And then you started to talk about these, you know, festival style setups. And that really, really resonated with me because there's no restrictions on where you can have concerts and where you can have uh, beer festivals and things like that. But those can attract five, 10, 15,000 people. And why can't soccer do that? And it really, really got my, my mind racing about how a community can kind of take that idea and run with it. And I'm wondering what, if your idea has evolved at all since you've been, you've been working with that kind of a uh, mindset and, and what advice you might give to a community that has, you know, kind of like a, the, the seedlings kind of planted right now. Yeah. And I think, I think that really is the core of it. Like what you're describing is the proof that this, that this is how it should be. Like, so let me, let me say this first off. Like I, I do not challenge in any way that MLS is the D one league in America. Right. I don't, I don't give them that credit because U S soccer calls them the D one league. I give them that credit because they have the highest quality of players, the biggest stadiums, the most fans in attendance, you know, all these other things. And, and so what I really want people to do is let's forget about the arbitrary ranking we're given, right? Oh, well, this is a men's adult league. It, it's irrelevant. Or this is a D5 league or a D4 league. This is irrelevant. Let's, let's throw out all these labels that mean nothing in a system without pro-rel. And let's judge events on attendance, quality of play, you know, quality of player, fan engagement, supporter group engagement. Let's look at what really matters. 
you know, I'm in Chattanooga right now. I'm, I'm on a rooftop bar in downtown Chattanooga <laughs> talking to you called the Pickle Barrel. And, you know, Chattanooga does not have a population of 750,000. So if we look at the pro league standards, if, if Chattanooga wants to go into a Division II league, it creates a problem because they're under the 750,000 minimum residence, minimum, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, population. These guys have an amazing stadium. They sell more tickets here than they were selling in San Francisco for the Deltas last year, but they can't be a D2 team because they don't have the right population. Like these are the ridiculous, you know, labels that are coming down from U S soccer. And until we as a society and we as a, a fandom, we as a soccer loving population realize that those arbitrary ratings mean nothing. We can't move the sport to the next level. Talk, talk a little bit about that idea of, of festival style stadiums though. Cause I'm, I'm like I said, I'm super interested in that. And I, yeah, I so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so let's talk about it. Like at the core, like you want to go watch the beautiful game, you know, you want to go have some beers with your buddies. You want your supporter group to be able to set off smoke. You know, you want to be able to parade into the stadium. You know, I look at I look at Indy 11 right now. Obviously, you know, uh, prior team we played against. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to Ursal. I, I know a lot of fans of Indy 11. They're going to play at Lucas Oil Stadium. Amazing. Big NFL venue. Well, they can't use smoke inside the building. You know, it takes away from the soccer atmosphere. You know, how many of those fans would be happier in 10,000 bleachers in a field somewhere where there's porta potties for restrooms and tents for concessions, but they can march and they can play drums and they can pop smokes and they can have an amazing time and they can lower the ticket price and they can make it all about the community because it's not about the building. You know, we're not the NFL. This sport is nowhere near where the NFL is. They can afford to build iconic buildings. They can afford to build buildings. You know, look at look at Apple and Amazon, right? Those are companies at the top of their game. They can build a headquarters you know, that is massive. They can build a headquarters that is overly expensive. The average company can't. The NFL can build ridiculously impressive stadiums. Soccer isn't there yet. Will we get there one day? Yes, I do believe we will. But what I think we need right now is this festival style. Go find a piece of land somewhere, put seating on it, put a pitch on it, and make it all about the fans and a great experience. Maybe you bring in some local bands. You know, maybe you, you bring in some food trucks or vendors make it an experience. You know, we, we sponsored a chili cook-off in Orlando and by using my advertising to promote the event, we took it to over 10,000 people coming to this chili cook-off. You know, I'd love to see an Armada chili cook-off when we build our own stadium. <laughs> you know, I, I can't do that right now at the college because it's very regulated. You know, we can only pop smoke in this very small corner of the stadium. We can only be in the facility this many hours before and this many hours after. And we have to share the parking lot with the students and all these things. Put us in a festival-style stadium somewhere, and we will have a lot more fun, and we'll have a lot more opportunity to create unique experiences for our fans, which then centers around the game. Yeah, a good example of I, – I don't know if it's a festival-style stadium, like I guess like the way that you're describing it, but Sacramento Republic had a pretty interesting setup when I went to go see them where they're at the fairgrounds. There was a stage that was right next to the field. They had like a concert going on in the, in the pregame. It was just a different type of atmosphere – than you normally had at a soccer game in the United States, especially. And so that, that really stuck with me about like, you know, how can you kind of double dip or do these other things in addition to, to, you know, really draw your community in and get full buy-in from, 
from your community. And if you have to get creative like that and you have to add in a chili cook-off or a band or whatever, that's, that's not, that's not a bad business plan. That's, that's actually good business and it's going to, you know, help everything grow. And that's what I think is kind of ignored in this. If you, if you go by the book of the PLS and, and the other kind of bullshit standards and whatever. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we, you know, and look, I don't, I don't say to add those things to take away from the game, you know, during the 90 absolutely. minutes of the match, it's all about the game. But if, if you can create a way to expose the casual fan, because one of the things I've really enjoyed, you know, is through my advertising in Jacksonville, when we put over 7,000 people in the stands, a lot of them had never been to a game before. They had never been to a professional soccer match before. A good chunk of them fell in love with it. You know, so if you have a chili cook-off or a band and it brings in casual fans and it causes a percentage of them to fall in love with this amazing game, which has not taken off in our country yet. Yes, it's the fastest growing. Yes, it's on the upswing, but we're not there yet. You know, we need to get there. And the way you get there is by exposing more fans to the game. And, and again, that, that's part of why I don't understand USSF's decision within ASL. We were exposing more fans to the game without taking anything away from them. To me, that should have been rewarded and, and accepted, not, not desanctioned. But at the end of the day, that's what we have to do. We need to expose more people to the game. And we need to do it in cost-effective ways, in community-driven ways. You know, I'd love to see two or 300 pro teams across the country. I'd love to see a robust pro, you know, abundance versus scarcity mentality towards soccer, have hundreds of pro teams, bring in pro rel, let communities come out and support them. No, they can't all build a $300 million stadium. No, they all can't pay a $150 million expansion fee, but they can support a community-based festival-style stadium and give our young people and our up-and-coming stars a place to play soccer for a living so they can continue to chase their dream. What you what you're saying about casual fans, I don't want people to hear that and 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 think that's a negative. I think what what they should really focus on what people should focus on is what you're also saying about communities. So people love their communities and they they will do things to support their community whether it's soccer or uh, baseball or, or football, whatever. People love the cities that they live in. And to me, that's been a big disconnect for why I don't have like a favorite Division One team because there's no Division One team in my community. I'm not connected to LA. I don't care about San Francisco or San Jose. I care about my city. And I think what you're talking about is going to drive community involvement and, and doing that however however possible and whatever fans decide to show up is is absolutely the right way to go. And so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm super interested to keep following all of your work and to introduce people to, to you and, and what you guys are doing. Yeah, so that's exactly where soccer has a chance to be different. So when, when I look at soccer at its, at its purest, it's about inclusion. You know, it's, it's a very affordable game to play. If you look at some of the poorest countries on this planet, they play soccer. It doesn't require as many people on the roster. It doesn't require a lot of fancy equipment. It doesn't require, you know, you need a ball and some ground and a net and you can play the beautiful game. And that is the, the exact definition of inclusion. And so when I look at the American sports landscape, the NFL, 32 teams, you know, NBA, I think 30 teams, you know, it's about scarcity. Not every city gets one. There's only 32 chances. Are you one of the lucky 32? You know, we're one of the lucky 30. It's about exclusion. It's about scarcity. It's about saying only certain cities are big enough and important enough to have a professional team. To me, that's not what soccer is about. Soccer is about inclusion. Soccer is about every city having 
a team, every community being able to stand up a team and then organizing those teams in a way through promotion and relegation where the cream naturally rises to the top. And ultimately that top division, I don't want to call it division one because division one, two and three in my mind have been ruined in this country. Let's call it the top division because the best teams have worked their way up to be there. And that's what pro rail is all about. So when you have a scarcity model, you don't need pro rail. If there's only 32 NFL teams, there's no room for pro rail. But if there are going to be hundreds of soccer teams in this country, like there should be, look at England. Their population is roughly twice the size of Florida, right? A little over two times Florida. They have 100 professional soccer teams. Florida should be able to support 50 professional soccer teams. Well, let's say, well, Robert, soccer is not nearly as as popular here as it is there. Okay, then give me 30 professional teams in Florida. Whatever it is, let's make it about inclusion and abundance and let communities buy in and support this sport and then let the pyramid and let pro-rel move people up. I think the biggest issue or the biggest mistake that the pro-rel movement has made is they focus on the top of the pyramid. And I believe we have to focus on the bottom of the pyramid first. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because I know when Dennis Crowley got involved, I'm sure you're aware who Dennis is, right? Yeah, absolutely. We, yeah. We've, we go back and forth on Twitter a little bit. I, th- I think he's here in Chattanooga and we're definitely going to hook up next time I'm in New York. Yeah, definitely meet up with him. He's a he's a great guy. But when he, when he first kind of got involved with Stockade, he had the same mentality where he wanted to focus on the bottom and he thought, you know, the bottom was where it was going to get fixed. But then I think he realized maybe in a, in a different way his experience or maybe his experience was in in a different way, but he realized that there was like a glass ceiling, like all of a sudden his Stockade was stuck at the NPSL level. There was no way they were going to get out. And that's when he realized that you know, there is a problem at the top as well. And it's a battle that I, if I look at it, I think that it has to be fought at the top and the bottom. And, and right now there's people that are doing that. And so I, like I said earlier, I couldn't be more thankful for guys like you and Dennis and Ricardo and Rocco and guys that are, you know, fighting on all fronts. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a definite, it's a problem that no one has the easy solution for. I think at the core we have to, I think we have to at some point step back and redefine what is the top. You know, and where I think where the NPSL, the biggest miss to me right now in the NPSL, and this is something I'm actively trying to work with other NPSL teams. It's why we're in Chattanooga right now is the NPSL has to go longer season. As long as the NPSL is a three month summer league, it doesn't have the opportunity. I think that's a lot of what creates the glass ceiling. It's not because the pro league standards say you can't go to division three or division two. It's because with only six or eight home games, you can't afford to pay players and you can't afford a travel budget. That's a good point. And so the first thing we have to solve for is we need amateur clubs playing a 32-game season. The UPSL is doing that. There are other USASA leagues doing that. Once you're playing a 32-game season, you can now spread. If Detroit and Chattanooga, two of the best stories, in my opinion, in the NPSL, if they were playing 32 games, 16 home, 16 away, they could afford a player payroll and they could afford the travel budgets And now there could be another level on the pyramid because the issue is the next level up, it has to be 32 games and it has to be a little more spread out geographically. You know, if you look at NPSL, you're playing teams that are all a couple hours away to go to the next level up on the pyramid. Again, I'm not talking about the USSF pyramid. I'm talking about a synthetic pyramid to move up one level from what we currently call the NPSL. You would need to play teams a little further away. Detroit and Chattanooga should be playing each other. They should be going down to New Orleans to play the Jesters. Uh, They should be coming down to Jacksonville to play the Armada. They should be going up to Charlotte to play games there. 
that's the next rung up. And what's holding us back from that next rung is not U.S. soccer. It's lack of enough games and lack of travel budget. And that's what we now have to solve for. Are you are you actively working to solve that? That's why we're in Chattanooga right now. 20 teams trying to solve that very problem. That's awesome. Um, I, I don't want to I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I want to ask you one question, though, and I don't want you to think that by not saying somebody's name, they're, they're going to be labeled as a bad person. But who, who are some of the good guys right now that, that you are working with or people that you've been excited to meet along this journey that that you're now kind of sharing this battlefield with? Yeah. So, you know, obviously I've got an amazing relationship with, with the NASL owners. You know, I mean, I got into this game with Rocco and Ricardo, uh, Carmelo Anthony, you know, there's, there's just a couple of us left now. Uh, you know, we're, we're all trying to figure it out. And, and I believe at the end of the day, we all want the same things. We all want to figure this out in a way that's best for soccer outside of my NASL group and the group I came into this sport with, what I've really, I guess, been attracted to or found the most intriguing or the people I think have the most to offer is people coming up with creative solutions, right? Like who's figuring out how to get it done? Uh, Atlantic City FC, uh, I've had a lot of conversations with those guys. They're, they're doing amazing things. The way they've tied in sponsors to provide career opportunities for players to offset player costs. I mean, they're, they're doing some amazing stuff. There's a lot of those types of creative stories out there. Detroit and Chattanooga, I will always give them all the praise in the world. What they have built inside of the NPSL framework is nothing short of amazing. Uh, there are clubs uh, in the UPSL doing amazing things, uh, you know, from coast to coast. You know, they're, again, I think a little heavier on the West Coast, but they've got some East Coast guys that are doing some great things. John Mata at the at USASA. I mean, there's just, there's so many people that all want the same thing. And it's just a matter of coming together and throwing off some of the, the old taboo or the old restrictions or the old ideas of what is and isn't possible. And, and let's just let's let's throw it all out the window and start over and say, all right, well, what what can really happen? Well, if Robert's willing to build a stadium, you know, if the Armada are going to have a stadium and they're going to put these fans in the stands and do TV deals and all this in the de facto division four five, six, seven, wherever we land, maybe it is possible. You know, and that's where it has to start. We all have to be willing to invest and stop using the label as an excuse. Well, I'm just an MPSL team. I can't do that. Well, let's rephrase that and let's say I only have six home games. I can't afford to do that. Okay, then let's figure out how to get you to 16 home games. Let's figure out how to solve for the problems, ignoring the labels, ignoring the league names, ignoring the divisional rankings, ignoring the standards. Let's look at the core problem. We need to expose more people to the sport. We need a great place to put on the game. We need a great fan experience. We need the best players we can afford. And we need to try to make this thing financially sustainable and viable. And let's start with that and let's figure that out. And then let's push the cream up. Because if, I mean, look look at this, the amateur game in this country. You have, I think it's like 400 or 500 amateur clubs across the country between NPSL, UPSL, the state associations, the small regional leagues. It is a force. You can't tell me there aren't 12 or 15 clubs in that group who are ready to go up a level and play a 32-game season and win their way there through promotion and relegation. And then you can't tell me there's not another level from there. So let's get 30 to that level and then take 15 to the next level. All of a sudden, we have a three-tier pyramid. 
Now, by U.S. soccer's definition, it's all Division Four, right? But I don't care about that. I care about the reality of attendance, quality of play, and fan engagement. It's exciting to hear your energy, man. And I, I, I don't want to stop you from from being involved with those conversations in Chattanooga. All, all, all I ask right now is maybe a favor. Just tell them, tell everybody there that 343 says that we're behind everybody there. <laughs> well, do, man. And we, we appreciate that. And look, you know, we're going to be sharing what comes out of this. You know, the guys at Chattanooga did an amazing thing. They stepped up. They made their facility available. They put this out there on Twitter. They put this out there to other teams. They invited anyone, any stakeholder that wanted to come be a part of this was invited. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I know a lot of other teams are excited to be here. We're going to all start meeting and mingling tonight. I'm going to put get to put faces with names and Twitter handles and voices as we all <laughs> get together. And and I, I'm very excited to share what comes out of the next 48 hours. That's awesome, man. I love it. And and thank you for just taking a little bit of your time to to come talk to here, to to me and and my listeners. We really appreciate it, man. All right, man. Have a great day. All right, you too. Right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. Thank you to Robert Palmer for taking time out of his busy schedule while he was out in Chattanooga, Tennessee to just break away and talk to me for 30 minutes. I really appreciate that. It shows how dedicated and how passionate he is about this and how badly he wants to talk to people and get that message out there that there are people working on behalf of American communities to unleash soccer in this country. So... I thank you, Robert, and I thank you guys for listening, too. If you are looking for ways that you can support this podcast, make sure you go check out 343coaching.com because it is the 343 Coaching membership that really funds and sustains and helps develop this podcast. So be sure to check out all the benefits of becoming a 343 Coaching member at 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 3, 4, and 3, coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right. We will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast. Thank you.